Well, beloved, let us behold God's living word by turning to Colossians chapter 1. We'll be in verses 15 through 20 today as we continue our series, Christ is All, in the glorious letter to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Recently, some New York bystanders around Central Park were asked the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? The answers might interest you. Some who were asked the question said that Jesus was a historical figure, nothing more. No keen insights, just a historical figure. Others said he was a normal person with some extra insights, some perhaps extra knowledge and wisdom that many people don't have. One person said that Jesus was a marketing genius because he convinced so many people to believe in him. Another said if David Copperfield was in Jesus' day, then David Copperfield would be Jesus. Their answer to this question reveals not who Jesus is, but who they think Jesus is according to their own human knowledge. Well, I have an important question for us today. Everyone in this room, who is Christ? Who is he? Perhaps you come to us today with questions about who Jesus is. Perhaps you are confused about who Jesus is and you've heard about him at at church a while back or when growing up. But perhaps your answers would sound similar to the way these bystanders in New York answered the question. Perhaps you're curious about Jesus, and that's why you're here today. Let me first say that we're super glad that you are here. Perhaps you are a member of the church and you have known Jesus for a really long time. And you know a lot about Jesus, but like each and every one of us, as this text will help us to see, we all relegate Jesus to certain roles in our life and we don't allow him to expand elsewhere. Sometimes we think of Jesus only as savior and he is fully savior as the text will help us to see, but we relegate him. Sometimes we relegate him to simply friend. I want today for the scripture to answer the question for us Who is Christ? And let's let that answer be the answer that is true for us because it is true for all of eternity. And as Paul was finishing his prayer last week, asking asking God that the Colossians would be filled with the knowledge of his will so that they can walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, he then begins to unpack for them who is the Christ. If you remember in verses 13 and 14 of last week as he's finishing his prayer, he ends with the Father's work. Now, the Father's work is specific. He says the Father delivered the church from the domain of darkness and transferred the church to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And it's in the Son, verse 14, that We have redemption. 
the forgiveness of sins. And then after that, in verses 15 through 20, our text today, he's going to unpack who this glorious son is. It is one of the most richly dense passages in all of the scripture, and it's not lost on me today that I have the very difficult challenge of trying to explain this glory to us. So if you think of it as I preach, would you pray for me that the word would be clear and that we would see Christ high and lifted up for who he says he is and not how we answer him to be sometimes. Now this passage is, as many theologians believe, a hymn or a poem used in the first century church to precisely proclaim who Christ is. A statement of faith, if you will. Going back to it over and again, precisely proclaiming who Jesus is and using it as a means to worship the one it discusses. Paul is highlighting in this text the supreme and glorious Christ who is over all things. He wants the church to understand that Christ is literally over both the material and the spiritual world. There is nothing in all of creation which is not affiliated with its Christ. And as the false teachers are coming in and combating the supremacy of Christ, this is Paul's answer to them in its entirety. It's the full answer for the church at Colossae and for the church at First Irving. It is something that we ought to return to always to help us define and then over and again redefine the categories of who Christ is. We need nothing but Christ, for Christ truly is all. Perhaps you feel in the twinges of your own heart the need for companionship and fellowship, that deep desire that you have for dependency and to rely upon something, that hope that you have that dwells within you and that need that you recognize for the forgiveness of sins, that outlet that you want to express joy, complete and utter joy in. Paul tells us here that it's all found in Jesus, all of it, in its totality. He is all and in all. Now, before we get into the meat of the text, I want, before we get into the question of who Christ is and the meat of the text, I do want us to notice two phrases from our passage today that continue kind of to be redundant throughout the passage. The first phrase is this, he is, which is mentioned four times. And then the other phrase is all things, which is mentioned five times and really six times if you include the word everything in verse 18. These two categories will help us understand the basic, at the basic level, who Jesus is as Paul is explaining him to the church. 
He is describes who Jesus is each time he says it. So he is something, and he's providing a category that Jesus is. So every time we see he is, we want to make sure to take note of that because he's explaining the answer to the question, who is Christ? And then the other phrase, all things, describes everything that he oversees and everything that is subject to him. So when we see these phrases, they will help us to answer this question today. Now the question, who is Christ? I think the passage kind of answers it in three major categories for us today. The first way it answers this question is found in verse 15a. Christ is the image of the invisible God. What does that mean? What does that mean for us today? What does that mean for all time? How does that explain his deity, his humanity? We're going to get into that. The second answer to the question, who is Christ, is found in verse 15b and through 17, and that is Christ is the Lord of creation. What does that mean? How is he the Lord of creation? And to what scale is Paul referring? And the third way that Paul answers this question, who is Christ, is found in verses 18 through 20. Christ is the Lord of the church. And what does that mean? What are the implications of that? And in what ways is the church a sort of new creation inside of creation itself? Well, the first answer to the question, who is Christ? Number one, Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of God. Now, when we say image in the English today, it suggests a copy of something, like a picture. If you're holding a picture of your friend and you're looking at your friend, the picture images your friend, but it's not the same. There's a difference in likeness. It's portraying, but it's not exact. But the Colossians understanding of the word image is quite different. They understood image to be the complete likeness of something, the exact imprint of something, full and complete as the same object that it's imaging in every single way. Now, I'm not suggesting, hear me very loud, that the father and the son are the same. They're not. There is one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But they are alike perfectly in character and in their nature. Exact, the perfect imprint. Jesus images the Father. This is who Jesus is. God is invisible, as the passage tells us. But God became visible when Christ took on flesh. The image of God is what is made visible when Christ put on flesh, wrapped himself and dwelt among us and tabernacled with us, as John 1 says. We know that God is invisible, for no one has ever seen God, as Jesus said, or as John writes in John 1. But God, the only Son, has made him known. 
He is the very character and the nature of God, revealed perfectly in the Son. So when Jesus acts and operates, he's imaging the perfect character of the Father. Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. That's another way to say it. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This is what it says in Hebrews 1, 3. He's not something other. He's not something different. He's not something lesser. One theologian by the name of Michael Reeves says this, there is no God in heaven who is unlike Jesus. When we're in heaven, we don't have to go up there and look around the shoulder of Jesus wondering if there's something better. He images God perfectly and completely in every single way. Christ is who God is like. Now, we know that the invisible God has been known from the very beginning. This is what Romans 1 tells us. God's invisible attributes, namely his divine power and his divine nature, have been perceived and have been made known. So no one is, is without excuse. But it's Jesus who brings light to a foggy room. It's Jesus who helps clarify for us exactly who God is. That's why when Jesus comes, he says, I didn't come to abolish the law. Remember, the law is the character of God himself. But he comes to fulfill the law. And so when Jesus operates and he acts, we are watching God on display fully and completely. This is who Christ is. I do want to make a side note for us here. We know that this language, the Imago Dei, is also mentioned in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. We, church, beloved humanity, is made in the image of God. But we want to make a huge distinction, a huge distinction between one who is made in the image of God and one who is the image of the invisible God. Christ is the image of the invisible God. We are made in the image of the invisible God. We have attributes like fellowship and a desire to worship, and we have responsibility to rule and uh, over uh, the, the domain of creation like God has given us, the responsibility to do. But we do not have the likeness of God in us the same way that Jesus does. He's fully God and he's fully man. There is a significant difference between the first Adam and the second Adam. God in all his attributes and his aspects are on display in Jesus, but they're not on display in us. For it says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Adam was a living being. We are a living being, but the second Adam is a life-giving spirit. It's the difference between the sun and the moon. Before we go any further, that needs to be distinguished in our own minds, in our own hearts, that Christ is other. He's the perfect human because he's fully and completely and perfect perfectly God. Now we see in verse 19 right here in the text, I'm going to just drop down for a minute before we move forward, that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in the Son. In him, the fullness of God was on display. Christ 
is fully imaging God when he wrapped up flesh around him. Not partially, but fully. It says in Colossians 2.9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Christ is the new and better temple where God dwells. That word dwells is the same word for abide. The sum total of God's deity dwells in him bodily. I want no question remaining in your mind whether or not that Christ is God. He is fully God as he is fully man, the image of the invisible God. He is the place in which the fullness of God's glory and wisdom, his word, takes up residency. So we see God in the flesh in Christ and think about how he acts in certain situations. Think about his interactions with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. His grace to her within her sin. She's living with someone who's not even her husband and she's been married five times over. And he's gracious and he reveals himself to her and he saves her. This is the gracious character of our God on display to the one who needs grace. But we also see the the justice of our God on display as, as Jesus walks into the temple meant to be used for prayer, but it's being used as a den of robbers who are exchanging things like money and, and um, business in his temple instead of praying and worshiping him. And he flips up the tables and he shows his righteousness, his justice also. God models, or Jesus models who God is in the flesh perfectly and fully because the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. And as Jesus says in Matthew 11, all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal himself. One brother from the church says, Christ is the treasure of the father, explaining this relationship between the two. Christ is the treasure of the Father, shared with us. Sometimes we find ourselves tiring of Jesus. Do you find yourself tiring of Jesus ever? Just asking. Spiritually bored of him, because Jesus has, but Jesus has satisfied the mind and the heart of the infinite God for all of eternity. Our boredom is simple blindness. If the Father can be infinitely and earnestly satisfied in him, then he must be overwhelmingly and all-sufficient for us in every situation for all of eternity. Before we move to the second point, I have a question for you. Where have you made God in your image rather than recognizing that Christ is the image of the invisible God? We tend to make God in our own image. We created him to be something at times that he has not revealed himself to be. Think about how thoughts float up into your mind. I think of God in this way, dot, dot, dot. Or if God was good, he would not have allowed, dot, dot, dot. If God was loving, this wouldn't have happened, dot, dot, dot. There is a real sin issue in us and we need to take note of it that we, the created, often try to make a creation out of the creator himself. 
he has made himself known to us. So the first way we answer the question, who is Christ? We must recognize that he is the image of the invisible God himself. The second answer to this question from our passage, who is Christ? Well, Christ is Lord of creation. 15b, the firstborn of all creation. Listen to these this is, this is just glorious. Verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were, through, were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. The image of God, our Christ, is over creation. He is the Lord of creation. And all things in creation are subject to his authority in everything and at all times. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, let's look specifically at the, what the text says. Firstborn of all creation. Let's just start there. The first in rank is what firstborn means. He is the prize of creation the highest ranking official in creation. Firstborn does not mean first created, as firstborn in our families would suggest. He is the place of highest rank and affection. This is who he is. It's like Israel held the affection of the father, the firstborn son of the father in Exodus chapter four, verse 22. He, Israel was the, Firstborn affection of the Father and the Son is the firstborn in all creation. He's the beloved one. It means that Christ outranks every single thing in creation. Now, how do we know that he's preeminent in all things? How do we know he's firstborn in all things? Well, verse 16 tells us that he's actually the creator. He's the creator of the very creation that he's firstborn in. He is the maker. All things, remember that phrase, all things were created by him, which means he's the location of the creation. All things were made through him, which means he's the means of creation used by God. And all things were made for him, which means he is the benefactor, the recipient, the vortex, the one that receives everything that was made, that was made, belongs to him. He made it, it was made through him, and it was made for him. Christ is the agent of all creation, the purpose of creation, the goal of creation. There is nothing that exists that doesn't exist apart from him. And there's not anything that exists that exists for the purpose of existing apart from him. He is the goal of what it's all about. You cannot find one thing in all of creation in which Christ isn't the crafter of. So when the false teachers of Colossae are saying, yeah, Jesus is good. Paul is saying, no, Jesus is everything. He is creator by him, for him, and through him, all things are made. What are you even saying? What are we even saying today? 
So many things are nipping at our heels and in our hearts, challenging us to believe in who Christ is and all that he has revealed himself to be. Is he firstborn in your heart? Creation cries out for him. We even see in Psalm 19 that the heavens declare the glory of our God. What is the scope of this? Well, Paul tells us in verse 16. Look at the scope of everything that Jesus is over. It's one, say, it's one thing to say all things. It's another to see what those all things are. Check this out. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, things we don't even know exist, he's over. Everything that we do know exists, he's over. And everything we don't even know exists, he is over. Whether those be thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, we, we might see some of it. We see the lands, the presidents, the dictators. We see all these things that the world shows us today. And he's Lord of those things. And he's Lord over realms that we don't even know how to describe. All of them find their authority in him, whether they know it or not. Everything in creation belongs to him. Does that mean the satanic realm, the demonic realm? Does that mean Satan himself? Absolutely. Everybody and everything is subject to this Christ. Well, what about the galaxies far, far away that continue to expand in time? Yes, he's creator of those things and dictators and presidents and all these things that we see that look like they're controlling the world. Think about Pilate as he's standing before Christ. Jesus' answer to him is on what truth he says, like, you have no authority over me except that which I have given you. Jesus has full and complete authority. Abraham Kuyper, a Dutch theologian, he said it this way. There is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry. Mine, mine, it's Jesus's. And he didn't just begin creation. He didn't just create and leave. He governs her now. Look how 17 kind of unpacks the summary of verses 15 and 16. He was before all things and in him all things hold together. So this creation that's just been explained that he's over in 15 and 16, he was before it. This speaks to the preexistent nature of Jesus. He can't be created because he existed before the creation. Do you remember what Jesus' response in John 8 is? Before Abraham was, I am. In Revelation 22, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last and the final, amen. This is who Christ is. He created, he was before it, and he governs her still. Arius, who was a heretic in the second century, said there was once when he was not. 
Arius was wrong. Completely and utterly wrong. There was no time in which he was not. And he sustains everything at every moment in creation. Look, look at the second part of 17. And in Christ, he holds all things together. Everything is held together in this Jesus. Who is Jesus? He's the one who holds everything together at all points of every hour of every day. I'll be honest with you. To give examples of this feels very impossible. My examples are going to be quite thin to the glory of Christ in holding all things together. We could talk about the expanse of the universe and his creation and how everything is created with purpose and intentionality from the far parts of the cosmos to the very intricate places of the atom. He holds the atom together, which scientists still don't understand how an atom is held together. And he spins the planets to orbit and gives them gas and weather. He holds our brains to think right now just to hear his word. The reason your head's not falling apart right now is because he holds it together. I'm not even trying to be funny. It's, a tr it's true. He holds it in his hand, all of it, at every hour of every day. He spins the planets. He plants the trees. He feeds them with water. He helps them to grow. He knows the finest points of every single mountaintop and every rock formation under the mountain that we've never even seen. He's holding it all together. He knows exactly what's going in every function and rhythm of the ocean this very minute. He didn't just create it. He's holding it together. This is our Christ Do you think of Jesus like this? Guys, if we're honest, we just relegate him often to our friend or our savior. And he is all of those things and fully them. And we'll get into the savior part here. But do we see Christ this way? We sing about Christ and to Christ on Sunday when we think about him even in small portions. But Monday through every part of Sunday, do we walk the earth recognizing that every single step on every single street corner in every place we've ever been, he says, mine. Do we walk the ground as if he created it and owns it? Do we breathe our breath as if he gave us the breath and the lung function to even breathe? He is creator for a purpose. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that was made. You are breathing and walking right now because Christ has said yes. And for the purpose of Christ's glory in all of it. There is nothing in creation that makes sense apart from Christ. Not a single thing. There's not some theory that doesn't find its yes in him. 
He is the theological theory of all things. The purpose behind everything, the goal behind every single thing, the center of everything. Do we think of Christ in this way? The purpose of everything. An old English pastor, John Bradford, said, this is Christ's world and we live most happily in it when we acknowledge that constantly. The very logic of creation. Christian, would one say of you that he or she is living in this world with the understanding that the whole world belongs to Christ? Would you be described as that way? The way that you walk, the way that you talk, the way that you live, would they say he or she is living in a world that suggests that this world belongs to that Christ? I hope that we're growing in this understanding year in and year out. Do you remember what Paul prayed last week? That they would grow in the knowledge of God's will, which was manifest in Christ. He's the mystery revealed, Colossians 1.27. Are we growing in this understanding? Are we, is it helping us understand that everything in this world has purpose found in him alone? Or are you living with a posture that suggests this is your world? to which Christ is also a part of. Think about that in your daily life. How often do you think about this Christ? And how many times do things come in view instead of the Christ? Just things for us to consider. Because to be honest with you, there's not just a ton of application that comes from this glorious hymn. So we have to be confronted in our hearts about whether or not we believe this is who Jesus is. So Christ is Lord over all this original creation, but he's also Lord over a new creation, firstborn over first creation, 15 through 17, and firstborn over a new creation, which is called the church. So who is Christ? Well, he's Christ is Lord of the church, this new creation. What does that mean? Well, look with me. And what Christ achieves when he enters into the image, this flesh, he becomes the agent of salvation. The birth of the church happens. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He's firstborn in creation, highest ranked, and he's firstborn in the church, to which he is the head of the body. He's the first fruits of resurrection. Think of it this way. His first creation was designed for, revel- for revealing who he is and for creating a pathway for him to come and to reveal himself in the Son. Well, this second creation, the church, is designed for eternal preeminence. He is gonna make all things new, and he's going to dwell with the people, the church, forever. So inside of creation, the creator steps into the world, and he becomes the firstborn of the new creation, which is this glorious 
church. So why are you putting so much emphasis on the church? Well, because Paul does. Paul is mentioning the church in this glorious hymn, and I don't want us to forget what Ephesians 3.10 says, that the church is the manifold wisdom of God that reveals to the rulers and authorities who God is. The glory of Christ is found in the church. The knowledge of the, Son, of the Son of God and His plan is revealed through the church. And this is where His glory is found, Ephesians 3:21. So Paul quickly gives us three ways that the, or two, excuse me, two ways that the church was created. First, it's through the resurrection. He's the firstborn from the dead. Christ is the source of new life the new creation for the believer. John 14, remember what Jesus says, because I live, you also will live. Remember, we're raised to walk in new life. He's doing something. He's raised from the dead. He's first born, the highest ranked one from the dead, never to die again. John 14, 24 tells us that Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So as Christ died and was raised, the firstborn from the dead, we are raised with him. Corey talked about this in 1 Corinthians 15 just a few weeks back. We are raised with him. This is our Lord. He doesn't just raise, he raises us with him. He is the fruit of the church, never to die again. We see in 19, the fullness of God, we've already mentioned this, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. He's able to do these things because he is God. But the center point of the second part of this hymn is this, that Christ made peace by the blood of his cross. So the first creation, which all was made by him and through him and for him, rebelled against him, as Romans 1 says. Us creation rebelled against creator. But Christ did not enter flesh to destroy those who rebelled, but to reconcile and to save and to forgive. He stepped into creation from the lofty position of creator and notice how the hymn ends with a cross and bloodshed, talking about his humanity. The convergence of Christ's humanity and his deity converge right here in this beautiful hymn, where all of everything is accomplished at this cross. And what is accomplished? Well, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. His cross proved that he's merciful to those who believe and repent. His, his cross proved that he was justice to those who, just, just in, in his wrath against those who have rejected him. So God creates all things through Christ and then God reconciles all that creation through Christ 
because he's preeminent. This is the whole point of creation. All of it is Christ. Well, what do you mean? Well, I do want us to remember that this reconciling work upon the cross was co-signed and agreed upon before the world was ever formed. Revelation 13, 8 says that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. So then the point of creation was to reveal who God is and then to reconcile through Christ back to himself, a people for himself forever, making peace by the blood of his cross. Everything that was captured from him in Genesis through the garden, stripped of us, Christ got it back, reconciled to him. The cross is the center of creation. The whole world was created to reveal Christ, and Christ through this church redeemed and reconciled all things to himself. The one who made the tree that he died on brought it all back to him. Luther, Martin Luther said that the cross proves everything. He's right. And we can rejoice in the resurrection, both the spiritual resurrection that we have to walk in new life and the physical resurrection that is headed our way upon Christ's return. So the first Adam had a bride torn from his side. Her name was Eve and all of humanity comes from them. We're in sin from them. But then the second Adam comes. And from his side, being torn open, there's also a church, a bride that comes. And it's a forever bride. And he reconciled this work through the cross. We are not the center of creation. Christ is the treasure of creation. If Christ is creator of all, recipient of all, sustainer of all, the firstborn in the church, the creator of the church, and will reign forever and ever, and it's all for him, he's the goal, he's the purpose of everything made that was made, and all the things that we can't even humanly comprehend, he's the answer for. That should affect our lives. <laughs> that should affect every part of our life, actually. That should affect our marriages and how we treat one another. That should affect the way we handle our money, the way we spend our time. That should affect how we handle technology. That should affect everything. If Christ is firstborn of creation, and Christ is firstborn of the church, my question for you in every area of your life is, what is firstborn? What is highest rank? What is grabbing for your attention and you're enjoying it? We should be confronted in a passage not just to agree with it, but then to recognize all the areas in which we don't really see Christ as firstborn in our lives. There's not one square inch in all of creation in which Christ does not say mine. And lastly, I want us to see in verse 18, if you can just 
Write this on your heart, believe it, memorize it around your table and family worship, say it to one another before you go to bed at night. But here it is in verse 18, that in everything he might be preeminent. Firstborn, nothing else to search for, no other treasure to find. He is the firstborn in creation and he's the firstborn of the church. Is he firstborn right now in areas of your life that have been handed over? The deep, dark places of sin that you haven't even confessed to your closest friend. He has made himself known so that these things would be revealed and then reconciled to himself since he's Lord over even the difficult things in our lives, the sufferings that we're walking through, he's Lord over. The challenges in our relationship, he's Lord over. All the things that feel like they're falling apart in your life right now, he's holding it all together. This is our Jesus. Why do we tend to marvel at the things that are created by man rather than the things that God has created through the Son? Let's look at creation and marvel, but not marvel more than we, want, than we marvel at the one who created it. Because that would be idolatry. And truth is, these subtle idolatries are everywhere in our life. So this passage should help us to rejoice and to be the happiest people in the world that we're gonna be raised to walk in new life forevermore with our king. And then it should also confront us because it trains us and it shows us all the ways that we fail to see him as king of creation, king of the church, image of the invisible God. There's a few ways that you can respond today. All of us should respond. I'm telling you, preparing a sermon like this, I got worked over this week, thinking through all the ways that Christ is not my king. Can you just ask yourself in the response time, what's not yielded to him? whether there needs to be sin you confess or just a healthier way to think about him. God, help us. He will help us. That's why Paul is praying these things for the church. He'll do this work for us. If you don't know this Jesus, I would lo love to talk to you about this Jesus. He's made himself known for you to know him. So in the time of response, there's pastors that you can talk to. Perhaps you need to pray. Perhaps you need to come down and pray and just see all the ways that Christ is not the Lord of your life. And here's the good news, people. He's not gonna be fully the Lord of our lives because we're sinful. But we have the cross and we can go back to the cross and we can remember the forgiveness that we have in Christ. This is the gospel and we get to preach it over and over and over to ourselves again. Consider these things as we respond today in prayer. Please bow your head with me.
God, you are majestic and glorious. And those words just seem to fall short in trying to articulate back to yourself who you are. But God, would you help us to trust and believe these things about Christ and who he is and all of his glory? Would you do work in our hearts during this response time? Would you reveal sin in us, Lord, that we're holding back, reluctant to give over to our King? God, perhaps there's people in this room that don't know you. God, would you draw them to you today? Through your spirit, through the preached word, Father, would you bring them into your kingdom, deliver them from the domain of darkness and transfer them into the kingdom of your glorious Son? in whom's name we pray, amen.